It's time for Unit 6 in our module, People in Business, and today's unit is about communication and conflict. So what we're going to do today is we're going to define effective communication and understand its importance for organizations. We'll be looking at the communication model, or at least one specific communication model, explain the communication process, and describe some of the barriers that exist to effective communication. What we'll do in the process then is also explain some of the main directions of information flow in organizations and distinguish between formal and informal communication. We'll also look at the concept of conflict, distinguish conflict from the concept of competition, and explain traditional and current perspectives on conflict in organizations. We'll describe the factors that give rise to conflict in organizations and also explain some of the stages of a conflict episode. And we'll also look at some methods that can be described in order to resolve or even stimulate conflict in organizations. So that's an overview of what we'll be looking at in our unit of conflict and communication. And this happens to be one of my favorite topics because I used to be sort of an expert in communication. Let's have a look at how we can define communication. We can think of communication as a process in which information is transmitted where information and its meaning are conveyed from a sender to a receiver. Now this is a very simple way of understanding communication. Simply the transmission of information from one party to another. So communication is not merely a mechanical exercise of transmitting information, but also an effort to establish some kind of shared meaning between the two parties who are involved, or the multiple parties who are involved, the sender and the receiver or receivers. So communication, although it may seem quite simple, it is actually quite complex. The more complete understanding we have of the communication process, the better we can understand how misunderstandings can occur. A more in-depth understanding of communication is not merely seeing this as something mechanical, but seeing it as something that is embedded in context and is constructed through the different parties involved in the communication. Now, messages in the process of communication can sometimes be ambiguous and they may even be intentionally ambiguous with respect to their meaning even though one of the major goals of communication is trying to establish some kind of shared meaning between the parties so in organizations you may already suspect some messages are even intentionally ambiguous Managers may use communication in a strategic way to be strategically ambiguous for several reasons. Meaningful communication or communication that carries meaning 
is not merely rational, it is also laden with emotions. So whilst communication may be thought of as transmitting a message or developing shared meaning, whether that meaning is ambiguous or whether we are intentionally being ambiguous, communication is shaped also by emotions and not just by rational cognitive thinking. When you think about the idea that managers may be strategically ambiguous, you start to understand the idea that power relationships also shape communication in organizations as well as in other realms of social life. So let's have a look at some of the basics of the communication process. As I mentioned before, you will have a sender and a receiver in a very simple communication process. The sender is considered the person who initiates communication and sends some type of message. The message goes to the receiver who may then or may or may not provide some kind of feedback to the message. We can consider communication to be successful when the receiver understands what the sender has intended. However, in many cases, the receiver may not fully understand the message or the intention of the message. So there may be different stages in the process. You may also already be aware of the fact that there is verbal communication and nonverbal components of communication. We normally communicate verbally through words. Non-verbally, we also communicate through things like body language, facial expression, tone of voice, or even certain kinds of utterances that are not actually words. And so we might ask ourselves the question, if communication plays such an important role in organizations, then it must be important to understand how communication can be improved and find out different ways that we can improve communication. Now, some of the reasons that messages might be misunderstood or uh, intentions may be misunderstood may be due to a phenomenon that is commonly known in the field of communication as noise. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the type of noise you would hear uh, in the background, people rumbling about or chatter in the background. That means different things that can disturb the intended message of the sender. So it could be different kinds of in interference. It might be because of the channel that's being used or the media. It might be because of some intercultural differences. And so the process of establishing common meaning can raise several issues. Some of the ones that I've already discussed in terms of ambiguity or intentional ambiguity and this process of encoding and decoding that can cause different interpretations of meaning. One of the other things that can cause messages to go interpreted wrong can be simply the fact that individuals have different perceptions. And so the sender's intentions 
may be transmitted through their own lens or through their own filter of perception, and the receiver would be attempting to decode that meaning by translating the sender's message through their own filter of perception. And so that brings us to a more detailed look at barriers to effective communication. For one thing, the sender must be able to express the intended meaning in some kind of symbols and, as I said before, usually in words. The sender has to choose the correct channel or medium to send the message. The receiver decodes the message, which can cause additional possibility for breakdown in shared meaning. And also, psychological states of the sender and receivers can also affect what is heard or how that message is conveyed, as well as what might be missed in that message. So distortion, for example, is another phenomenon that we can talk about in communication that has to do with uh, noise in the communication process. Distortion to, refers to the difference between meaning that the sender intends and the meaning that the receiver understands. First, the sender must express the intended meaning in symbols, and in many conversations, the listeners might think they have heard what was intended, but they actually hear only an abbreviated version of the meaning that was intended. You know, of course, uh, the classic difference between listening and actually hearing. So on the one hand, while the sender may have all kinds of meaning and background information in their minds, they only have a limited repertoire of words and expressions um, and communication ability to convey that meaning. And the same is true for the listener. Uh, they may listen, they may physically hear what's going on, but understanding then becomes an additional part of the process. We can look here at the idea of semantics. Semantics it comes from the field of linguistics and is generally understood to be the study of meaning. So it's meanings that are attached to words. So the sender has to encode the message in words that all carry some kind of meaning in that language and in that culture and in that specific context. Most words can have a number of different meanings and even just simply changing your tone of voice when you use specific words or where you put strings of words together can completely change the meaning of those words or the meaning of the message you're conveying. And poor choices of symbols or words can also distort the intended message. Another phenomenon in the communication process is called filtering. The sender's intended meaning is subject to this process of filtering. So filtering involves manipulating information that is being sent so that it will be received favorably by the receiver. You've heard maybe people say, oh my God, that person has no filter, meaning that they don't seem to think very much about what they say before they say it, or they say things that might be offensive or might rub people the wrong way and not really seem to care. Filtering is especially prevalent where one party of the conversation has more power than the others in a normal kind of uh, communication process. 
For example, when you have lower level employees sending information to the upper level employees. So they might be filtering their information in a much stronger way and making much more careful choices about their words in order to be able to use that bottom-up influence process. Secondly, the sender must choose the correct channel or medium to send the message. Now we've all certainly been the victims of misunderstandings through the medium or channel of emails. Even speaking on the phone can cause certain kinds of misunderstandings in the transmission of messages. So we can also look at different communications, different types of communication. So for example, oral communication allows the possibility for feedback and interaction. Now this has the underlying assumption that when we're talking about oral communication is we're talking about people having a discussion or having a dialogue where they can actually speak. A message is transmitted orally also might be misinterpreted as words can pass by quickly and could be overheard or may soon be quickly forgotten as people uh, as their minds may wander or as you move on to the next thing or as you move on to the next thought in the message. Written communication, on the other hand, has the advantage of a certain level of permeance. So once a word is written on a piece of paper or written into an email, it has uh, pretty much a, a life of its own that is relatively permanent. Uh, a trail of emails or uh, email evidence and other kinds of ways of using the written word uh, in a sense of permanence. You think about the Bible, which has been around for a very long time, also has a certain level of permanence, or the Magna Carta. The formal character of written communication might be considered, however, inappropriate for some types of messages. You may have found yourself debating, should I send this as an email, or should I just phone the person up? Or should I send a text message, or should I walk into the room and talk to my daughter myself? The formal character of written communication has uh, the nature of the receiver being able to decode the message with a longer period of time. But there is still the possibility of breakdown despite the intentional efforts put into written communication. The receiver will understand or at least seek to understand whatever message is being conveyed through the lens of their own biases and perceptions. Whoever received the message might project their expectations of others into what they hear. Now, stereotyping is an example of this. We may hold certain kinds of biases or expectations of certain groups of people, and whatever we might experience them communicating can be interpreted through that lens of perception of the stereotype, the bias of stereotype. So as a final note, the, I mentioned before, the psychological state of the sender and the recipient of the message can also affect what is heard and what may be missed and what is understood. You'll understand possibly that people tend to have a natural urge to judge. It's just part of human nature to approve or disapprove of the things that other people say, the messages that other people are conveying. 
And it's very difficult to avoid this tendency or to be able to put your own biases and perceptions aside when attempting to listen to people. Avoiding the tendency to evaluate, however, can actually truly enhance the effectiveness of communication. A variation of the tendency to evaluate and also one of the psychological conditions that most strongly affects organizational communication is the phenomenon of defensiveness. Defensive behavior occurs when people feel or anticipate some kind of threat. The character of the message itself can stimulate defensiveness and the message could potentially touch a sensitive area in the receiver and trigger a reaction. You may be familiar with this kind of response if you've ever received an email from a colleague that you felt posed some kind of uh, judgment of your ability or made some kind of assumption about your lack of knowledge or whatever the case may be that then triggered a certain sense in you to say, um, that's not really fair or what in the world are they thinking about me? And that is that a response of defensiveness. So that'll be the first part of our talk on communication and conflict. And in the next section, we'll look more closely at some other aspects of communication and conflict and lots of interesting things coming up. we're going to look at oral communication in a little bit more detail. So what can we know about oral communication? Conversational speaking is particularly useful in situations where immediate feedback is needed or where immediate feedback is important in whatever shared meaning and understanding is trying to be achieved or where those engaged in the conversation need to brainstorm or build on the ideas of others. So this is one of the helpful sort of guidelines to help you keep in mind when you speak to others. In thinking about oral communication, remember that when you speak, you transmit a rational and an emotional message. So this was touched on before that messages and communication is not always simply rational information. We also transmit an emotional message and we use emotions to help uh, obtain and achieve shared meaning. You, the trick is to pick the right tone of voice to communicate what, sh what you wish to communicate in a particular situation. Remember I mentioned before that even just slightly changing the tone of your voice can fundamentally alter the meaning of the message you're conveying. Disclosing to others what you think and how you feel about deep-seated personal matters may help to establish a situation in which others are willing to do the same. So self-revealing is one way of building trust. Self-disclosure, self-revealing. So this is a way that you can contribute to an organizational culture 
when you're trying to improve trust levels in an organization where people are more willing to reveal about their feelings and emotions through this process of self-disclosure. This makes communication on a lot of levels a lot much easier for everybody involved. If there's too much fear of self-disclosure and if there is a lack of trust within an organizational climate, then there is a lot of danger to communication. But you'll also understand that there are certain dangers to self-disclosure. Uh, self-disclosure causes people to become more vulnerable but it is far easier to establish in a trusting work environment and with a trusting work environment that has been characterized by appropriate levels of self-disclosure, trust can make communication much more effective and efficient and it allows us to extend that trust even further. Next, we want to look at the process of active listening. Listening is one of my favorite topics in organizational behavior. In fact, I've done a bit of coaching in uh, executive leaders around the idea of listening. And listening happens to be a specific component of my specialism in leadership called servant leadership. So first and foremost, the basic element of active listening is to actually listen, which means you have to stop talking. Additionally, other factors for active listening can include making a conscious effort to listen and to understand and to have a reason and a purpose for listening. Another factor of good active listening is the ability to suspend your judgment at least initially for a period of time while listening to the sender in their communication. Another important aspect of good listening is to re resist and restrict any distractions that could potentially occur in your communication process. So holding conversations in an appropriate room or turning off your phone when you're having a conversation with somebody or shutting down your email box when you're having a conversation with somebody. Another important aspect that facilitates good active listening is waiting before you respond to the sender when they've finished sending their message or when they've finished communicating. Give it a, a little bit of a pause and give yourself a moment to consider internally more what you exactly would like to say when you respond to that message. Another important factor of good and active listening that also gives important feedback to the sender is the idea of paraphrasing. Sometimes this is also called mirroring. When we paraphrase what we have heard as a receiver, we're giving feedback to the sender and letting them know what it is that we have understood from what they've said. Paraphrasing means restating what you have heard in your own words, or to summarize in simpler words, or to pick up on certain aspects and summarize those. Another thing that can be useful, another useful factor in active listening is 
trying to find important themes in the message that you've heard, important themes that can help generate that shared meaning. Use these as a thinking and speaking differential. Now there are a number of strategies for listening, the thinking speaking differential, listening for the main ideas in a message is more important than listening for specific facts. The thinking speaking differential refers to the lag of time between our thinking and our speech. People actually think much faster than they speak. And so giving yourself a moment of time to pause, as we mentioned before, waiting before you respond, is part of using that thinking speaking differential and can also improve communication. So listening really is the single most important communication skill. It consumes more time than any other aspect of communication. And not only are managers who listen much more able to pick up information better, but they're also better at interpreting information. They are also more likely to encourage and motivate employees, most of whom will really appreciate managers who actually listen. Most people tend to be passive listeners who simply listen without fully engaging uh, with or fully understanding the message or the sender. Active listening is an approach to listening that involves the one who is on the receiving end of a communication. Engaging in a series of conscious actions that are intended to clarify and confirm the meaning of the message received can improve comprehension and shared meaning considerably. An active listener shows empathy and understanding for the other person and confirms his or her own comprehension of the message, for example, by restating what has been said, by summarizing major points, and by listening not only to the words that are being said, but also listening to the overall emotional tone and paying attention to the accompanying nonverbal cues that are being transmitted. So the first and foremost basic element of, act, of, of active listening is to actually listen, to stop talking, to turn off your distractions, and to be fully engaged with your communication partner. Next, we'll move on. I'm sorry, I went to... Next, we move on to supportive communication. Supportive communication refers to an approach to communicating with others that recognizes both of the purposes in communication. Supportive communication can be understood as being problem-oriented and not person-oriented. This process encourages being descriptive and not evaluative. It also encourages being specific and not general. Some other aspects of supportive communication are being disjunctive and not disjunctive. Validating others instead of demeaning them. Owning 
the conversation and not disowning what's being said. Seeing communication as two-way and not one-way, so as dialogic and not monologic. And supportive communication also involves listening carefully and receiving feedback from the other person. So a specific definition of supportive communication is, goes like this. It's an approach to communicating with others that recognizes both of these purposes of communication, to convey needed information and to enhance personal relationships in the group or organization. So these can be understood as two of the fundamental processes of communication, conveying information and, in, and developing relationships. Engaging in supportive communication will probably engender a happier and more pleasant work environment. So some additional details to some of these aspects of communication can be understood as follows. One of the things we pointed out is that when you engage in descriptive, in supportive communication, you want to be descriptive and not evaluative. To engage in descriptive communication does not mean that you ignore the issue at hand, as in you don't evaluate it. On the other hand, rather, it means that you approach communication in a more positive and action-oriented way rather than in a judgmental way. So in terms of being specific versus general, the more specific a statement is, the more helpful it will be to expect uh, anything to change. Being specific helps also create deeper understanding. Now, when we talk about being conjunctive and not disjunctive, what we mean there is that conjunctive statements clearly relate what was said previously and move the conversation forward, whereas disjunctive statements are not connected and often create a roadblock and thus interferes with effective communication. When we talk about validating and not demeaning in supportive communication, what we mean there is that supportive communication should help people to feel recognized, understood, accepted, affirmed, and valued. Negative or demeaning comments can make people feel inadequate, incompetent, and in insecure, and can also cause an erosion of trust in relationships. Validating communication acknowledges the importance of others, including their feelings and values, and is characterized by respect and flexibility. In supportive communication, as I mentioned before, of owning the communication and not disowning it, has to do with the idea of taking responsibility for what you communicate and how you communicate it. So taking responsibility for the communication process and being accountable. Supportive communication uh, is owned in the sense that the speaker takes responsibility for what has been said. Communication that is attributed to another person or that is ambiguous with respect to the source of information also makes it difficult for the receiver to pursue the issue further, and that can be very frustrating. So when we use distancing language and detach ourselves from the information, that can cause certain kinds of disjunction in communication and is a way of disowning what is being said. 
So communication, as in supportive communication that is two-way, not one-way, involves listening carefully and receiving feedback from the other person and not simply engaging in a top-down or a one-way monologic uh, approach to communicating. So that's going to be the end of this second segment on communication. And in the next part, we'll be looking at meetings, for example, conflict, and carrying on from there. Now we're going to move on to the concept and process of conflict. So we'll start off, as always, with a lovely academic definition of conflict. Now you'll find that there are a number of different definitions for conflict out in the academic literature. So we're going to be using this one, a fairly simple definition that sees conflict as a process in which people disagree over significant issues, thereby creating friction. For conflict to exist, several factors must be involved. People need to have some kind of opposing interests, opposing perceptions, or opposing feelings. Those who are involved must recognize the existence of these different points of views or different perceptions, differences in feelings about an issue, and the disagreement must be considered something that is ongoing rather than simply a singular occurrence. People with opposing views must try to prevent one another from accomplishing their goals. This is one of the elements that would establish a certain situation as being a true conflict. So some of the different perspectives that come through in the idea of conflict are that some people consider conflict to be a destructive force. And although we often use the terms conflict and competition interchangeably, these two things differ quite significantly. Competition can be considered the rivalry between individuals or groups over some kind of an outcome. And competition always will have a winner and a loser. While competition can be a source of conflict, conflict does not necessarily involve winners and losers. It doesn't fundamentally involve one side winning and one side losing. We can have conflict over issues, but we can also cooperate in such a way or collaborate in such a way or integrate our interests in such a way so that no one loses and no one necessarily wins or dominates. So those are some fundamental aspects of defining conflict as a disagreement that is ongoing, where differing points of views exist, and where a person perceives that their goals or their needs are going to be disadvantaged in some way. There are some additional ways we can understand differing views on conflict. On the one hand, conflict can be considered as a negative force or dysfunctional, as mentioned before, as 
fundamentally destructive. However, this is not universally so. Conflict certainly can make people feel uncomfortable and consequently can also make them be less productive. Two situations that would be considered negative, destructive, or dysfunctional. However, conflict can also be viewed as a completely natural and normal part of life, of organizational life, and can even be considered beneficial to the workplace. Earlier views of conflict in management uh, considered it to be more dysfunctional than productive. Some levels and types of conflict certainly can be healthy, and others certainly are, are not. Now, let's have a look at high levels and low levels of con conflict and what that might mean. Low levels of conflict can lead to things like complacency and stagnation in workplace behavior. If there's no conflict between members in the group or members of the organization, people will tend to get set in their ways and feel like nothing needs to be improved, nothing needs to be changed. Now, on the other hand, very high levels of conflict, especially if based on individual differences, personality differences, or some kind of personal or relationship-oriented conflict, rather than issues related to tasks, organizational goals, and processes, these high levels of conflict can be very detrimental to the organization and can also be the cause of dysfunctional behavior in the organization. The level and type of conflict and how it's managed determine whether it will be beneficial or detrimental. Managers should understand this and should expect that intelligent and well-trained, motivated employees will certainly disagree from time to time over a variety of issues. So by learning how to manage conflict properly, a manager can mobilize disparate pieces of information and diverse perspectives into essentially productive solutions. Conflict forces a person to test and assess themselves and as a result stimulates interest and curiosity in others and can pr pr promote productive change. Let's look at uh, views of conflict from another angle. This model here shows how conflict in terms of levels can have some kind of impact on organizational performance. You'll see here when we have low levels on the bottom axis versus high levels also on the bottom axis from left to right going from low to high. In the low levels of conflict if we uh, if, if that falls into the same line with low performance and low creativity at the bottom end of the of the y-axis going from low to high to the top performativity creativity so low levels of conflict together with low levels of performance performance and creativity can create phenomena such as complacency as mentioned before but can also create a phenomenon called groupthink Groupthink is a phenomenon in which people in the group have so much agreement with each other and think so similarly 
that they fail to take more critical views and fail to find creative perspectives for illuminating problems and situations from different angles. And therefore, groupthink can lead to poor problem-solving processes and poor decision-making processes. Now, if we go to the other end of the spectrum, where we have high levels of conflict, uh, but still low levels of performance and creativity, this kind of an atmosphere can create infighting and lack of cooperation in an organization. So this is also a situation that would be generally considered undesirable in terms of organizational behavior. And if we look then in the middle, where we have medium levels of conflict, so a little bit of conflict, sometimes a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more, but also have an atmosphere of creativity, this can lead to high performance and high creativity when we have a good balance in the level of conflict. This can lead to healthy disagreement among ind individual colleagues of well-trained and highly knowledgeable colleagues, and it can also lead to a healthy discussion of ideas in a group. So the model there illustrates a little bit what we were saying about the high levels and low levels of conflict and how a good balance of a medium level of conflict can actually be beneficial to an organization. So let's take a look now at some of the consequences of conflict, whether they be advantages or benefits or disadvantages. So as we mentioned before, competition and conflict can actually motivate people and inspire them to focus on a specific task. Involvement in competition can bring group members closer together. So some of the benefits of competition and conflict can be an increase in energy, increased focus, and this can also stimulate creativity and innovation, trying to find new ways of doing things. It can also increase the level of in-group communication because people are coordinating more as they work towards that goal in that competition. It can also create more in-group cohesion, which is something we saw in groups of teams that is very important. Having cohesion in a team leads to effectiveness and efficiency. And conflict and competition can also lead to increased discussion of issues so that these issues can be illuminated and can also be addressed at appropriate times. When outside conflict occurs, groups and members will band together and conflict is essentially inevitable in organizations and can be desirable, although we have seen that a high level can be very destructive. So let's look at some of the disadvantages. Some of the disadvantages is when you have uh, conflict and people aren't handling it well, that you may end up focusing only on the conflict and not necessarily on the task at hand. So a high level of unresolved conflict can be destructive in this way, that there's too much focus on the conflict and then the focus gets lost on what really needs to be done. Another disadvantage of conflict and competition is concerned with winning and beating and dominating at all costs. 
which can lead obviously to some dysfunctional behaviors and some bad feelings and lack of trust in the organization. Disadvantage of conflict and competition can also be distorting people's judgment about what's going on, distorting their judgment about uh, their own perceptions and the intentions of others. It can also lead to a lack of cooperation if the conflict is too, too high, too ongoing, and if it remains in the personal realm rather than in the task realm. And it can also lead to something we call the loser effect, where people may become demotivated or even depressed. Ideally, managers will be proactive in creating an environment which, uh, in which the likelihood of dysfunctional conflict is minimized as the diversity of contributions and talents of others are actually appreciated. When conflict is not resolved or goes on for a long time and gets to the levels that are too high, managers are risking letting differing, differing perspectives go undirected and often can result in wasting energy and resulting in tension and dysfunction rather than focused energy, creative and progressive change. So now let's look at some types and levels of conflict. I've mentioned some of these things as I've been talking, such as interpersonal conflict or relationship conflict. Now we've got intrapersonal conflict, which is a conflict that goes on within one individual, an internal conflict. Then we have interpersonal conflict, which is a conflict that arises between two or more people who are required to interact and who have different goals or different values or different styles, different ways of doing their work. Intra-group conflict refers to conflict that occurs between one work group and another work group. And that may be over the goals of the different work groups um, and uh, over the work procedures. Intra-group conflict, the conflict within a working group over its goals and procedures. Inter-group conflict occurs when groups within and outside an organization disagree over various topics. Now, you heard me use these words before when I was talking about structure. Horizontal conflict takes place between departments or groups at the same level of an organization. So the conflict goes horizontally across the departments. Whereas vertical conflict means conflict in those chains of command that go up and down the hierarchy. So different levels of the hierarchy. So those are some different types of conflict that we can understand an organization from a structural point of view. Let's move on now to some sources of conflict. What are some of the things that can actually cause conflict to occur in organizations? Now you can imagine these are numerous and varied. Now there are personal sources of conflict and these are often interpersonal in nature and may cover many different areas. These are often influenced by individual differences, such as personality, work style, and even the culture of an individual. Because these, they involve individual values, these types of conflicts, personal sources of conflict, based on personal differences, 
tend to be highly emotional and difficult to resolve. I've referred to these at some points as relationship conflict. Perception in relationship conflict may also lead to personal differences. Differing perceptions alone may be enough to actually invite conflict. And many conflicts can be caused by cross-cultural differences. And these are further related to both differences in values and differences in perception, as well as differences in the way people communicate across cultures. Since culture influences what people value, it's not surprising that culture can be a factor in personal or relationship sources of conflict in organizations. The next type of conflict we want to look at is called goal incompatibility. So this can also be the source of many conflicts where one person's goal conflicts with the goals of another person or even when one group's goal is conflicting with the goals of another group. Because different departments and organizations are focused on different tasks and functions, conflict among them is inevitable. So their goals uh, could be resource-oriented and how those resources are distributed. Goal incompatibility can occur in individuals when, for example, two people are competing for the same promotion or when two uh, different individuals are competing for specific resources or for the attention of managers, etc., or the favor of managers. Uncertainty is another factor that can be a source of conflict. Uncertainty makes it difficult for managers to set clear direction. When you lack information as a manager, you have to either change course or remain flexible. Uncertainty can cause a lot of distress and fear and anxiety in individuals. It puts into question the accepted practices and procedures and opens the door for disagreement related both to goals and processes. So some of you may have had the experience of an organization going through consultation, as we mentioned in our uh, on-campus day, or uh, redundancies, whatever the situation, that causes a lot of uncertainty and anxiety among people. Resource scarcity is another source of conflict in organizations. I've mentioned this uh, previously, and when resources are scarce, employees and departments have to compete to get their share of those resources. And as a result, such competition can also lead to higher levels of conflict. Reward systems can also be a source of conflict in organizations. If managers reward competition and set up a kind of win-lose environment for their employees, they will increase conflict in their organizations. Similarly, rewards based on individual performance rather than team performance are also likely to increase intra-group competition and conflict. Interdependence is defined as the extent to which employees depend on each other to get their work done. And as we noticed in our unit on groups and teams, interdependence is an important aspect of working in a team. As long as people with different goals can stay away from one another, there may be little conflict. But the more folks are interdependent on each other, the higher the likelihood of conflict to be arising. 
So whilst interdependence is a good thing to be aware of, and it's a good thing for humans to be interdependent so that we're not all lone wolves, as we've stated here, interdependence can also increase conflict, especially in groups and teams and in organizations. So that's going to be the end of this segment in our unit on communication and conflict. And as we move on, in the next unit, we'll be looking at conflict management styles. Now we're moving on to individual conflict management style. So a little bit of background on this. This is actually a model of conflict resolution that was put forth by a scholar named uh, Kenneth Taylor. Um, and it looks at individual conflict and management style from a perspective of two aspects. Uh, focus on one's own interests and focus on the interests of others. And we can see this uh, formed in these, these five different conflict resolution styles. They are called collaboration, competition, accommodation, avoidance, and compromise. Now, managers and leaders are generally not really interested in eliminating conflict completely in organizations. Instead, they're interested in finding ways to manage conflict effectively. Managers need to consider several factors before deciding how to manage a conflict. Two dimensions are used to identify different conflict management styles. One is concern for self or assertiveness, as I mentioned before, the concern for one's own interests. And the second one is the concern for others or concern for others' interests, also understood as cooperativeness. Now, it's suggested that managers should take a so-called contingency approach and match the style to the situation. That would mean trying to match your conflict resolution style to whatever context, whatever situation, whatever contingency you'd be dealing with at that time. And you can note that although conflict management style or conflict resolution style may have a basis in personality, that is different individuals will have different styles of conflict approach, it's not necessarily considered to be a personality trait. All of the styles of managing conflict are valid and people's conflict resolution style may differ from situation to situation. And what is appropriate for that specific situation will depend on the context, the specific elements, the individuals associated in that conflict situation and how important it is for you as a manager to satisfy your own needs and the needs of others. So let's have a look at these five conflict management styles. I'll start with the style called avoidance. An avoiding approach to conflict resolution means that this is a situation where the person is demonstrating 
a low interest for their own needs or concerns, as well as a low interest for the needs or the concerns of others. It's also characterized by a low level of assertiveness, as well as a low level of cooperation. And basically all that means is that this person utilizing this style would like to avoid conflict altogether and is not interested in getting too involved or getting too invested in resolving a conflict, maybe because it doesn't matter to them, maybe they don't care, or maybe it's because they simply can't handle the emotional stress of dealing with a conflict. So that's low uh, concern for self-interest, low concern for others' interests, low assertiveness, low cooperativeness. Now next, I would move on to the other extreme of the spectrum, and that would be the uh, competition aspect of conflict resolution styles. So the comp competitive conflict resolution style is characterized by a high concern for one own, one's own interests, a low concern for others' interests, and high on assertiveness, low on cooperation. So someone who is approaching a conflict with a competitive conflict resolution style is basically out to win and out to dominate and out to destroy others in the conflict. They will be uh, assertive, self-centered, and self-promoting in their approach to the conflict. Now on the other end of the spectrum here, we have an accommodating style. And that's the type of approach to conflict resolution where you have a high concern for others' interests and a low concern for your own interests, or also characterized as a high level of cooperativeness and a low level of assertiveness. So somebody who is accommodating, you can imagine, is interested in making other people happy, making sure that their needs are met, that their interests are in the focus, and will tend to uh, focus less on their own needs and would also prefer to be less assertive. Now, if you, you can think of this as a general approach to conflict resolution. You may know some people like this in your own organization. Um, people who prefer to be less assertive may tend to be more accommodating in their conflict resolution style. Now we've got two styles left collaboration and compromise. Let's look at compromise first. A compromising style of conflict resolution basically falls in the middle of assertiveness and cooperativeness, as well as sort of in the middle of looking out for one's own concerns and looking out for the needs and concerns of others. But the thing to understand about a compromising style of conflict resolution is that in the end, you're agreeing to some kind of compromise, and that might mean that some of your needs are met and others are not. And the same applies to the other party in the conflict. Some of their needs will be met and some will not. And the final style of conflict management or conflict resolution is called collaboration. This is also sometimes referred to as an integrative style of conflict resolution. 
And what that means is that you find a way to collaborate on a very high level, that you're able to integrate the concern for one's own interests and the concern for others' interests. And you're also able to integrate an appropriate level of assertiveness to ensure that those needs are met, as well as a high level of cooperativeness to ensure that everybody's needs are met. So this involves, as stated here, a high concern for satisfying your own needs and the needs of others, and is considered to be uh, the, the most effective way of reaching uh, reaching agreements, for example, in the process of negotiation, so that everybody goes away feeling like they're happy and their needs have been met. It's also related to the idea of a win-win situation, where everybody's needs are met, everybody wins, everybody's happy. So those are the five different conflict management styles. And just as a matter of illustration, to kind of help you understand uh, the difference between these, I often like to use uh, the metaphor of, of oranges. So if you can imagine, you've got two parties, it could be two neighboring countries or two different companies within one, uh, one, one sector or one environment, and there is a certain pool of resources, let's just say it's a huge crop of oranges. And both parties are very highly interested in getting their hands on these oranges and they need them for, for their products, they need them for uh, making profit, they need them for the viability and sustainability of their business. Now, as you can see, we've got two parties with conflicting interests. And if one of the parties doesn't get the oranges, they may go, go bankrupt. So you can see there's a certain interest on both sides. So let's think about it. How might somebody approach this conflict? If we were coming at it from a competing point of view, that would mean that one country or one firm would ensure that they get all of the oranges and the other company or the other nation doesn't get any of them. And they would do everything they can to assert that interest and to avoid any kind of cooperativeness. An accommodating style would say, oh, do you know what? We'll wait till next year. Why don't you guys go ahead and take all of the oranges? Now in a business environment, that's gonna be very unlikely. An avoiding uh, approach to conf conflict in this situation is probably also highly unlikely. Now this example is good for uh, illustrating the difference between the compromising and the collaborating style of conflict resolution. In a compromising style, the two companies, the two nations might come to an agreement that they split the crop of oranges down the middle. They get half, the other, other side gets half. And what does that mean? Well, that means that everybody gets something, but each of those companies might not be able to reach their productivity or their sales goals uh, because they are both working with lower numbers of oranges or a lower volume of product uh, of supplies than they had counted on in their, uh, in their plans. Now, a collaborating approach to dealing with this conflict would mean the two parties would go into the situation and try to figure out what are their underlying interests in this crop of oranges. 
And instead of saying that, well, we just need all the oranges and you can't have any, they might come to realize that the one company or the one nation wants to use the oranges to make juice and other food products. Whereas the other company is interested in making perfume. So what does that mean? That would mean that the one company is mainly interested in the flesh of the oranges and the juice, whereas the other company would be more interested in the rinds or the peels of the oranges. And in this way, they can come to a win-win collaborative solution by splitting up the crop of oranges in such a way that each side gets what they need. The one side gets all of the skins and rinds, the peels of the oranges, and the other side gets all of the juice and the flesh of the oranges. So let's move on to our next topic in conflict. And that is looking at behavioral methods of conflict prevention and reduction. A manager is using enforcement of rules and policy and separation as methods of resolving conflict. To manage conflict effectively, the organization should maintain a moderate level of conflict through prevention and reduction or through an increase or stimulation of conflict. This behavioral approach is aimed at simply stopping the behaviors that are causing the conflict. It doesn't delve into the roots of the conflict or analyze its sources. And the results of this approach are often quick and short term and are useful if the conflicting parties are not interdependent so that they can limit or avoid interaction. So with this behavioral method of conflict prevention or reduction, we start off as stated before, that the manager is using enforcement of rules and policy and separation as methods of resolving the conflict. So we're depending on the fact that rules, policies, and procedures are put in place in the organization, and you're ensuring that the conflicting parties are not interdependent and can be separated in order to avoid further interaction in resolving the conflict. The source of conflict is not addressed, so we're not looking to go on some kind of a fishing expedition or some kind of psychotherapy uh, process to find out what the source of the conflict is. Employees do not develop the skills to address their differences in this behavioral approach to conflict prevention and reduction. The manager has not presented a long-term solution and the conflict is simply suppressed. These tactics can be appropriate in an organization when the individuals or groups do not have to work together. They can also be used successfully if the conflict is over trivial issues and when, let's say, time off, can give a chance for cooler heads to prevail. In addition to rules and separation, clarifying tasks in the situation can also help reduce conflict. So shifting the focus back to the task aspect rather than the relationship aspect can be useful. This behavioral method is effective when conflict is caused by a lack of clarity concerning work procedures or goals. And in some ways it sounds almost like a strategy of conflict avoidance if you take into consideration the things that were just described. Now we're going to look at attitudinal methods of conflict prevention and reduction. Compared to the behavioral approaches, attitudinal methods of conflict resolution aim not only at changing people's behavior, 
but also at changing how they think, that is, it changes in their cognition, and as well as changing how they feel or changes in their emotions about the conflict and about one another. These attitudinal approaches focus on finding and resolving the root causes of the conflict in contrast to what we saw in the behavioral methods of resolving conflict. This approach tends to result in longer term resolution compared to the behavioral approach. So we're defining the attitudinal method of conflict prevention and reduction as an approach that addresses the roots of the conflict by focusing on emotions, beliefs, and behaviors. This approach to conflict prevention and reduction is more time consuming than the behavioral approach, but it does have the potential for long-term resolution of conflict. Managers should use the attitudinal approach when conflicting parties do have to work together, such as in a self-managed team or between members of two departments that are highly interdependent. They should also rely on behavioral approaches to address more simple conflicts where quick resolution is needed. So compared to the behavioral approaches, attitudinal methods of conflict resolution aim not only at changing people's behavior, but changing how they think and feel about the conflict and about one another. This approach tends to result in longer term resolution as compared to the behavioral approach. So one attitudinal method of conflict reduction is to find a common enemy or to compete with another group outside the organization. So finding that common enemy can uh, bond people together. The focus on an outside enemy can pull the conflicting parties together rather than have them continue to focus on their conflict. Instead, again, we're shifting the focus to something else. The presence of an outside enemy, however, does not fully address the source of a conflict, but what it does is it increases the interaction of the conflicting parties and it can also increase their cohesion. It can ease internal tensions and provide an opportunity for the conflicting parties to work productively together and focus on common goals rather than on their differences. Rotating members among departments is an example of this and can achieve a similar goal. This new perspective and increased interaction with other employees provides opportunities for the conflicting parties to discuss and resolve these differences. Managers can further resolve conflict by increasing resources so that individuals and departments do not have to compete for them. Now, that sounds pretty unlikely in today's organizations, doesn't it? Another attitudinal method of conflict resolution is full-scale intervention through team building. Team building is an intervention and a problem solving that both focus on long-term solutions but can also be time-consuming. Along with team building, managers can use organizational development interventions, which involves making wholesale changes in organizations by addressing individuals at multiple levels, the individual level, group level, and organizational levels. What are some other factors to consider in conflict management? This next model shows a few of them. 
These were mentioned previously when looking at the behavioral approach and the attitudinal approach to conflict management. So some of the things a manager might want to assess in deciding which approach to take to the conflict management would be the importance of the issue. Is it something that is trivial or is it something that could impact the long-term effectiveness of performance? Managers should also take into account the power of the parties involved. So this could mean their status in the organization, their personal power, their expert power, what sorts of sources of power do they have in the relationships that are involved. Another aspect for managers to consider when deciding how to approach a conflict is whether or not there is a need for a long-term solution. They also should consider the complexity of the issue, as well as the time available for coming to some kind of resolution in the conflict. And so with that, we will close our talk about conflict in organizations. And the next aspect of this unit is around negotiation. we're going to look at negotiation. So negotiation kind of goes with communication and conflict because in the process of negotiation you've also got two parties involved who are trying to reach some kind of mutually agree agreeable arrangement. Like in communication you have two parties involved in trying to reach some kind of shared meaning, some kind of shared understanding and in conflict where two parties are conflicting over specific goals or perceive something to be a threat to their interests. So we can define negotiation in this way as a process whereby two or more parties reach or attempt to reach a mutually agreeable arrangement. Most negotiating processes will have certain common elements for one thing, the parties will be involved in some way and in some way are interdependent on each other. The parties are in some kind of conflict over goals and or processes. Parties involved in negotiation are generally motivated and capable of influencing one another. The parties believe that they can reach an agreement, otherwise there'd be no point in entering into negotiations. And so these four elements come into play at different stages of the negotiating process. So now we can have a look at the phases of negotiation. Phase one, the investigation and preparation phase, includes gathering factual information about the issues at hand as well as alternatives and acquiring softer information about the other party's interests, positions, and even their personality or negotiating style. Intense preparation not only leads to a better outcome, but also reduces anxiety in negotiation. Phase two is called the present presentation stage. 
And in the stage of presentation, initial offers and demands are presented, either orally or in writing. The third phase of negotiation is called the bargaining stage. So this is where actual bargaining starts to take place in which people, such as managers, will use various negotiating strategies to reach an agreement. And phase four, or the final phase, is called the phase of agreement. And this phase, once agreement has been achieved, this closes the process of negotiation. So some of the things we'd like to point out about negotiation is that besides the communication aspects and the conflict aspects, there are also ethical aspects involved in negotiation. There may be a number of ethical dilemmas that need to be addressed in negotiation. Negotiating to get what you need raises a number of ethical dilemmas. And so here we want to look at some of the typical ethical violations that you would want to avoid when in the process of negotiation. And they are presented here as progressively more serious. So the selective discourse, uh, typical as an ethical violation, means that negotiators highlight positive information and will downplay or fail to mention any negative information. This obviously has ethical implications because you are withholding uh, certain aspects of information, and in particular, you're withholding information that could have some kind of negative impact. Misrepresentation means an ethical violation in negotiation where negotiators misstate facts or misstate their position. So essentially, they're lying. For example, they misrepresent the lowest price they are willing to accept. Now you might not call that outright lying, but they, in a negotiation process, most people are accustomed to the idea that there's gonna be a certain amount of haggling going on. And so when you say the lowest price I'll accept is this, but you're still willing to go lower, that would be considered misrepresentation. Now deception and lying take this to a higher level. Negotiators will give the other party actually factually incorrect information. So they're intentionally providing incorrect information that is factually wrong or information that will lead to the other party making incorrect assumptions or conclusions. This also obviously has some ethical implications. Now you may see negotiating partners making false threats or false promises. Again, this is lying and deception taken to a higher level where negotiators provide misinformation about actions that they may take if negotiations don't go their way and concessions that they would be willing to make if it did go their way. Now, if you think about what's been going on with the B word um, and negotiations with the European Union and the United Kingdom, you may recognize some of these elements of negotiation and of the ethical dilemmas and violations involved in the negotiating process. 
Finally, uh, negotiators may actually inflict direct or indirect harm on their negotiating partners. This is where negotiators would intentionally sabotage the process or sabotage the other party's chance of success in any way. Again, if you think about what's been going on with the United Kingdom government and the European Union, you may be able to recognize factors like this on either side. Now, culture also has certain implications for negotiating processes. Given that negotiation involves the exchange, the interaction, and communication involved in this process, culture's impact can be quite significant. Knowing how culture affects negotiations and having information about another party's culture allows for more focused preparation, clearer presentation, better bargaining, and more effective agreement. In addition to national culture, many ethnic, gender, or other group-based values affect how people negotiate. Savvy and effective managers include culture in their preparation and in other phases of negotiation to assure that they meet their goals and those of the other party. Now we'd like to turn to some specific negotiating strategies. This is looking at negotiating strategies on two different dimensions. Uh, the substantive outcome and its relative importance, or the relationship outcome and its importance. And so based on these two dimensions, to what extent the substantive outcome is important and to what extent the relationship outcome is important, we can see four different types of negotiating strategies. And this might look slightly similar to what we saw in the conflict management uh, strategies or conflict resolution styles we saw earlier. So if we look at uh, high substantive outcome being important and a high level of the relationship outcome being important, then we would see that we're looking for a negotiation strategy towards a trusting collaboration. Trusting collaboration, which places high importance on the substantive outcome as well as high importance on the relationship outcome, will be characterized by openness in the negotiating process, cooperation, looking for a win-win solution, and also approaching it from a more problem-solving kind of perspective. Now, if we were to look at this from the opposite end, where the substantive outcome is not important, or the relationship or and the relationship outcome is not important, then you would see an active avoidance of negotiation. So there might be no interaction here. There may be a certain level of refusion to negotiate. Uh, there's no win and there's no solution. So you can see the negotiators in this case don't really care about the task or the relationship involved in this negotiation. Neither one is seeking to win or lose. And the individual is simply not party to the exchange or the interaction. That may also be an aspect of this approach to negotiation. As uh, the opposite with the trusting collaboration, you would see negotiators using this strategy when both task and relationship are important. 
and parties can share their motives, ideals, and goals openly as they want to reach a mutually acceptable agreement that promotes long-term relationships and continued cooperation. Trusting collaboration in teams or within organizations are where people are mutually interdependent is essential. When using trusting collaboration, managers need to do the following in their strategy. They need to use a neutral setting where both parties are comfortable and take turns making offers, explain and clarify their reasons and motives and offer an honest consideration appraisal of their own and the other party's position as well as be willing to yield on some issues. Now, if we're looking at a situation where the substantive outcome is highly important, but the relationship or outcome is not as important, what you'll see here is the negotiating strategy of firm competition. So this is appropriate when you don't really care so much about the long-term relationship with the other party, but only the outcome is important. Now, this is an aggressive win-lose strategy, much like the competitive style of conflict resolution and in which managers will concentrate on imposing their own solution. Firm competition as a negotiating strategy requires that one of the parties has access to power, organizational support, and the willingness to forego future relationships. Tactics of firm competition include imposing the negotiation location, so insisting that the negotiation takes place in a certain space, presenting your own offers and demands first, and refusing to discuss the other party's issues, exaggerating your own positions and the extent to which you have made concessions and yield very little on your position. Now, some of you may recognize this in some of your own organizations. Maybe your groups and teams, your departments, or as individuals, you've uh, fallen victim to this kind of firm competition negotiating strategy. When we look at the final specific negotiating strategy in which the substantive outcome is not important, but the relationship outcome is highly important, this is called open subordination. This strategy of open subordination should be used when the task or substance of the negotiation is not as important as the relationship. Now this will involve yielding to the other party on all or most points and only accepting that party's solutions. Open subordination, that is subordinating one's own interests, may be the only option when managers do not have much power or leverage in a negotiating situation. This strategy can be used when they have power but want to create goodwill or reduce hostilities when conflict is high. Tactics for this strategy of open subordination include letting the other party present all of their offers and demands first, making high offers and low demands, magnifying the other party's concessions and downplaying your own as well as conceding on as many demands as possible. So you can see how these four different negotiating strategies have some similarities and some differences with conflict resolution and also how the focus on the negotiating strategies is slightly different. Now, in order to determine which of the four strategies to use, the managers must consider the situation and their conflict management style and personality may also influence their selection of strategies 
in negotiations. Just like we saw at the conflict resolution styles, there are certain aspects of the situation that the managers would need to take into account in order to decide which strategy to pursue. So that concludes our unit six on communication, conflict and negotiation. And we can summarize some of the key points here as uh, understanding that people use different approaches to communicating. And this is based on their expectations of what approach to communicating will be most successful. But it also is dependent on uh, other aspects, situational aspects, individual differences, and so on. Understanding the type and level of conflict in conflict resolution is one of the first steps that managers need to take in order to manage conflict well and to be able to assist which aspects are prominent in the conflict situation so as to choose an appropriate strategy. It's also important for managers to be aware of these different aspects of communication and conflict so that they can assess their own approaches and actively, uh, by reflection in action, seek to use different strategies. While it's not always easy to separate the two, some conflicts are more directly related to individuals having incompatible goals or values. This might be considered a relationship conflict, whereas other conflicts are more related to the way uh, uh, tasks are carried out or the organization is structured or managed, and these might be more considered uh, task-related conflicts. So you can imagine how some of these aspects of communication and conflict and negotiation impact on the functioning, the effectiveness, and the efficiency of the way groups and teams function in an organization and how the structures of organization and the way we organize human resources in organizations can impact on the conflict that arises in an organization as well as how communication is managed and enacted in an organization. So therefore, managers must consider how complex the sources and issues involved in communication and conflict and negotiation are, whether they are seeking a quick solution or a long-term solution, and how much time they have to spend in their communication, in their conflict management, in their negotiating processes, how important the issues are, how important the messages are, and how much power is involved in the situations of both communication or conflict or even negotiations, and to understand how power hierarchies and power relationships can impact on all of these aspects of communication, conflict, and negotiation in human behavior in organizations. So there you have it, unit six, people in business, communication and conflict, and conflict resolution and negotiation.